Welcome to the February 2014 episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Ailey Dalgan. This month, a new drug target shows incredible promise in a mouse model of Gaucher disease. For me, it's the most exciting experiment I think that I've ever done in my life. I've never seen an extension of lifespan this long, and I hope I don't think I'm exaggerating. How an epidemiologist named Salim Abdul Karim overhauled South Africa's Medical Research Council. He is a giant of South African medical research. Plus, a new class of TB drugs, where HIV goes to hide, and a chat with the director of the Wellcome Trust. But first, an announcement. Nature Medicine is looking for a new chief editor. And if you're listening to this podcast before on February 10th, applications are still being accepted. What that means for you is that you could be my new boss. What that means for Juan Carlos Lopez is that he's leaving the journal. On February 17th, JC, Nature Medicine's longtime chief editor, will start working at Roche, the Swiss drug company. There, JC will be leading a new group focused on academic relations and collaborations. He will be sorely missed here at Nature Medicine. Now, JC came to the journal 10 years ago after serving as chief editor of Nature Review's Neuroscience. A Mexican-born neuroscientist by training, J.C. earned his Ph.D. at Columbia University in New York, where he worked with the Nobel Prize-winning psychiatrist Eric Kandel. And he did his postdoctoral research at the Cajal Institute in Madrid. When J.C. arrived at Nature Medicine in 2004, most of the staff was different. But senior editor Allison Farrell has been with the journal throughout J.C.'s tenure. Allison and J.C. recently sat down in our New York studios to reflect on their time together at Nature Medicine. Do you have any particular words of wisdom for authors and researchers who would like to submit to Nature Medicine? Publishing in high-profile journals, and and not only in in Nature Medicine, but in general in high-profile journals, is is hard work. It will always require doing the extra experiment, doing that experiment that uh, one may say, oh, that's going to take me one more year to do and I really need to publish this now. That has always been the case. That hasn't changed. At the same time, I wouldn't want to discourage people from uh, making making it sound like it really is too difficult and or that only people who have the resources to do these experiments can really aspire to publish in high-profile journals. One thing that um, people... Um, fail often to notice is that if you think about how it was 20 years ago when there were only two or three high-profile journals, uh, they were science, cell, and nature, all of these, the scientific community aspired to publish in those three journals. And after that, there were some other journals that were okay, but much more specialized. Now, there have been so many new journals over the past 20 years here at Nature and at other publishing houses, many of which can um, genuinely say that they are high-profile journals, that there's never been so so many opportunities before for somebody to publish a, a good study in a high-profile journal. It does require patience. It does require good uh, hard work. But um, there are also more opportunities now than there have been in the past. Scientific publishing has uh, is essentially unchanged um, since its inception, um, although the last um, 10 to 15 years maybe um, we have seen some changes in um, distribution of information, um, 
publishing styles, formats, um, but where do you see the future? Even the publishable unit hasn't changed um, probably for more than 100 years. Where do you see in 20 years' time science publishing? I don't know that I can predict 20 years from now where scientific publishing will will be. I think that all the criticisms that people have of the current system in terms of um, the how inadequate the peer review might be, how inadequate the paper might be as a publishable as as the publishable unit. All of those criticisms are fair, but I don't know that there's a viable alternative to to any of this. What could be a better way to share your data than telling a story in which you have a beginning, a middle, and an end? Again, I haven't seen anything that you would say that is persuasive enough so that um, people will start reporting their findings in in a different in a different way so my prediction for uh, i don't know 20 years but let's say for 10 years is that uh, we will still be doing peer review and we will still be publishing papers not unlike uh, the the ones that uh, that we publish today what will you take from your experience at the journal um, as you move forward and enter into a different career in um, the biomedical research industry? I think that one thing that that has been quite rewarding is the the fact that when when you do a PhD and when you're doing research, you, do, you develop this intellectual discipline to think about a problem in, in a certain way with a certain rigor and, and uh, what have you. Being at the journal for such a long time has um, refined that a lot in in me. I I think that now I've learned to be tougher with uh, my own thought processes, so that I don't don't settle on sloppy thinking, and I try to think things through in a more thoughtful way. Those are some of the things that I think are quite um, rewarding and quite unique about this experience. Now, Allison may have worked with J.C. the longest of anyone here at Nature Medicine, but she wasn't the only editor touched by J.C.'s leadership. Stacy Grossman-Bloom was a manuscript editor from 2002 to 2004. She now serves as executive director of the NYU Neuroscience Institute. I keep remembering and thinking about just how totally laid back he was, that he was doing this really super hard job, and he just kind of let us be really independent. He was so not a micromanager. He felt like he was so hands-off, but he also definitely knew what was going on, you know, all the time. For Mira Swamy, a reviews and news and views editor from 2010 to 2013, JC was an inspirational thinker. JC sort of taught me to be more analytical and critical in the way I think about science. So I think his way of thinking really helped shape my way of thinking. And that's been really helpful for Mira in her new job as business development manager at the tech transfer arm of the UK Medical Research Council. But not every part of JC style was always so welcomed by his staff. The one thing that used to drive me batty about him was that he would be doing his emails at the same time as he was talking to you. Poor Amanda Villi was Nature Medicine's news editor from 2002 to 2007. She now directs the autism news website, safari.org. And you were never sure he was listening to you, but really he was. He was paying attention to everything you were saying. He just wouldn't always look at you as he was doing it because he was multitasking all the time. Apoorva, I totally know what you mean. 
But really, that's about the worst thing you can say about JC. Again, here's Apoorva. He really was a great boss, and I enjoyed working with him so thoroughly. He's probably one of my favorite bosses of all time. JC, we're going to miss you. Good luck in your new job, and be sure that when you're in the middle of those important meetings at Roche, you know, check your email. Write me back. Speaking of people changing the jobs, this month in Nature Medicine, we have a Q&A column featuring Jeremy Farrar. For 17 years, Farrar worked in Vietnam as director of the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit in Ho Chi Minh City. But in October of last year, he took on a new assignment at the helm of the Wellcome Trust, the hugely influential medical research charity. Daniel Cressy interviewed Farrar at the Wellcome headquarters in London. How broad do you see the remit of welcome being. I mean, I, I speak to people who welcome about everything, kind of basic yeah. animal research, yeah. all the way through to these kind of issues. Right. But how, how broad is, is it in your picture? And how, it, how do you spread your funding across uh, that picture? I'd, it is a great question. And, and, it, and I, you know, the, there could, you could be under pressure to say, look, there are uh, significant fundings for what's called basic science, um, and that maybe the trust should move in a much more translational direction. I, I have to say I don't agree with that. I think that even though I come from the more clinical end of clinical science, you know, everything that I've done in my career has essentially been translated from some sort of understanding of basic science. And I, I think on the whole, if you move too much down the translational agenda and only take that bit of science, you will be fine for a while, you might be fine for some considerable time, but at some point in the future, uh, you will regret that because you won't have the pipeline. So, so I, I, I absolutely clear, and I have been in my own career, and I think I will, and I will be at the trust. Um, of course, we've got a huge desire to translate things into clinical practice to change people's lives, whatever it is, whether it's epidemiology, whether it's drugs, whether it's vaccines, diagnostics, whatever it is. But I believe the trust has got a role to play in encouraging um, that basic science before it becomes necessarily translatable. And. When many, many years from now you, you come to finish your time at the Wellcome Trust, what would success look like to you as you were leaving? <laughs> what would you like to be able to say, in my time at the Wellcome Trust, I have done this? I'm absolutely committed that we, we now invest in youth coming into the system. And one of the things, yes, I'd be very happy to be judged in, in X years' time, you know, let's be optimistic and say 10 years' time, or whatever it is that I uh, moved on or was moved on, um, that we have we have inspired and brought in a group of young people into science who have remained in science and gone on to do it. And so that the community in the UK and internationally is stronger for what the Wellcome Trust has invested in over that decade. So that would be one thing that I would like to be judged on, yes. I think secondly of course would be major advances in the things that we do all care about and we can go back to the challenge groups whether the environment nutrition health uh, metabolic neurosciences infectious disease genomics you would like to see major changes in those areas um, which had had an impact uh, coming through into people's lives uh, I think would be number two and thirdly I think is the role of science in society I think if in ten years time you'd achieved some of those youth public engagement with science and the community um, and some major breakthroughs in the sort of five areas that we focus on, then if you did that, yeah, you'd be pretty pleased. That should be easy enough. Easy peasy. Dan Cressy there speaking with Jeremy Farrar. 
You can read more from their discussion in the February issue of Nature Medicine. Now, one thing that Farrar has been quite vocal about is antibiotic drug resistance. And when it comes to drug resistance, there are few diseases quite as bad as tuberculosis. Multidrug-resistant strains of TB cause an estimated 300,000 deaths per year, and extensively drug-resistant TB has spread to 84 countries worldwide. It kind of goes without saying, but I'll say it here anyway, we need new TB drug candidates. Reporting now in Nature Medicine, an international team of researchers may have found one. They started with a well-known antibiotic drug called spectinomycin. Spectinomycin is sometimes used to treat gonorrhea, but it doesn't work all that well against TB. So the researchers tweaked the drug. With spectinomycin as their starting point, they made a series of analogs they call spectinamides. According to study author Eric Botger from the Institute of Medical Microbiology in Zurich, both the original drug and the derivatives kill TB by inhibiting the pathogen's ribosome. So the mechanism of action at the ribosome is virtually identical between spectinomycin and spectinomides. But the spectinomides have an extra special feature. They seem to evade an efflux pump that normally takes drug out of the cell. So whereas the spectinomycin, the starting drug, gets pumped out by this transporter... The spectinomides series, they are not subject of this transporter. They are not being transported out. And that's why they're active. In several mouse models of TB infection, these new spectinomides were well-tolerated, they reduced the bacterial burden in the lungs, and they significantly increased the animal's survival. It worked well. It worked surprisingly well, actually. That's Richard Lee, the chemist at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis who spearheaded the project. The only downsides of the drugs that Lee could point to was the fact that they cannot be taken in pill form. That probably means administering the spectinomides through an injection, or... One of the ways around that, we, we did an aerosol study. So we nebulized the drug and treating mice three times a week. I was a bit skeptical, I have to say, about trying the study, but it worked, the drugs worked really well. With an eye toward commercialization, a company called Microbiotics has now licensed the spectinomides. Michelle Butler is a senior scientist at Microbiotics in Worcester, Massachusetts. She says that follow-up experiments are helping to prepare the spectinomides for human clinical testing. It's hard to predict when we'll be ready for human clinical trials but we're very happy that we're progressing into preclinical. Notably, Microbiotics has some promising unpublished data involving the spectinomides given in combination with other TB drugs. We're showing that um, the spectinomides in combination with some agents, some known and um, developing TB agents, are showing to have some promising activity. Herein could lie the greatest potential of the new TB drug candidates. Not only do the spectinomides help kill TB through their action on the ribosome, and not only do the spectinomides prevent the efflux pump from shuttling spectinomides out of the cell. According to Ann Lennertz, a TB researcher at Colorado State University and a collaborator on the study, the spectinomides might also prevent the efflux pump from shuttling other drugs out of the system. So a really unique property of this new class of compounds that it is not really just killing the bacilli, but if it is used in combination with other drugs, that it prevents those other drugs from escaping from that organism. You can read more about the spectinomides in the February issue of Nature Medicine. One of the regions of the world hardest hit by drug-resistant TB is sub-Saharan Africa. 
and one country uniquely positioned to do something about the problem is South Africa. Since 1969, South Africa has had its own health-focused research organization called the Medical Research Council, or MRC. In a news feature in this month's issue of Nature Medicine, Cape Town-based science writer Linda Nordling chronicles the rise and fall of the MRC and what the agency has done in recent years to turn its fortunes around. This decline that uh, happened over many decades started in the 70s um, as the Department of Health became uh, steeped in a culture of managerialism. So people started looking at numbers and very much looking at red tape. So there was a a, a slow uh, erosion of medical research funding uh, coming into the MRC. Um, It was more about bean counting than uh, setting a vision for the country and setting a vision for medical research in the country. And it didn't happen overnight. It was a slow process. But these um, uh, prominent labs that were producing very good results in the 60s slowly um, deteriorated. And by the time uh, of the first democratic elections in 1994, uh, the MRC had lost a lot of its relevance. So let's jump ahead in time to just a few years ago, and they turned to one man. Tell me about who they tapped to become the president and why. Professor Salim Abdul Karim is, he's known as Slim Karim for short. Um, He is a giant of South African medical research. He um, made a a strong career, uh, an international career, and then came back to South Africa and brought research funding with him in a way. So he has been uh, doing research uh, for a a decade or or two decades or something um, in Durban looking at HIV. Best known, I guess, for the uh, Caprisa network that does a lot of the HIV trials, right? Yes, exactly. So he uh, is is a true giant uh, down here and an icon, I would say, and and a leader in his way of uh, of medical research. And in a way, he he embodies the spirit of South African research, which is that despite the decline of the MRC, South African medical research actually has been um, making strides without the support from the government, um, because there's been so many, so much interest from international donors um, and funders like the NIH or the Wellcome Trust in the UK to uh, carry out research um, in situ on diseases such as HIV and TB. So um, he is one of the very um, capable South African researchers who has been surfing that wave and has done so very successfully. And he was a bit of a reluctant leader. Yes. So when he was um, phoned up by no, nobody less than the, the health minister uh, of South Africa, because they were struggling to fill this position, nobody wanted to be at the MRC, to be frank. Uh, it was a bit of a, of a sinking ship. Um, so, but the health minister phoned up uh, Slim Karim. Who, they'd been to medical school together, so they knew each other. Um, and uh, Slim, I think he saw an opportunity to really make a difference even though it might not be uh, what he wanted to do at that point in time. You know, he was very successfully doing his research. His center was thriving. Um, but it was almost, I think, for him, a moral imperative to go in and provide, try to provide South Africa with the leader uh, and the coordinator of medical research that they'd lost in the MRC's decline. So in his brief tenure, which... It's just started, what, in 2010, 2011? 2010, yes. Wow, okay. And, and t- 
tell me about some of the major changes he's managed to achieve. Well, one of the problems of the MRC was that it was kind of, uh, nobody had really been um, reviewing it to make sure that it, what it was doing was fit for purpose, that it was the best way to spend the, 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 the small amount of money that the South African government can, can put on medical research if you compare it with you know, the NIH's budget or something. So it had a, a bunch of um, intramural research units, and these had kind of grown and become quite sluggish, and also some of them were outdated. They weren't very productive. So he reviewed the internal, um, uh, the, the intramural units, and he uh, closed down more than half of them. So once he cleared out the, the cobwebs, so to speak, um, he went to the South African government and asked for um, a funding increase for the council, and he's managed very well to do so. Over his two years in office, um, he has increased the budget by 50% uh, from government. Uh, in addition to that, um, he has struck up these deals with funders like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the NIH to co-fund programs. So he's, he's done a few clever things. Wow. So clearly, Kareem has been quite the impactful leader. But as you write in the feature, he's leaving in March. What happens now? How do they avoid going back into the doldrums? And who's going to pick up where Kareem left off? Well, that's the uh, million-dollar question, I think. They have been um, headhunting for his position, for his replacement. I'm told that they have a few candidates. Um, they haven't made any decisions yet. Um, Slim himself seems fairly confident that they will find someone who will be able to take over and build on what he has uh, achieved so far. The, the challenges are ahead are as big as what what Slim uh, faced when he came into the office. So it all depends on who becomes his successor. And I think many uh, people are, are, are waiting with a lot of interest to see who they can find to pick up his mantle. Linda Nordling. Still to come, a new therapeutic strategy for Gaucher disease. But first, HIV's hiding place revealed. In the early days of the AIDS epidemic, an HIV infection was akin to a death sentence. But nowadays, thanks to antiretroviral drug therapies, people infected with HIV can live relatively healthy for years. They're never quite fully cured, though. HIV has this unique ability to hide out in certain cells in the body. And if treatment is stopped, the virus emerges from this hidden reservoir and starts multiplying again. This reservoir is made up of a part of the immune system known as memory T-cells. But not all memory T-cells are alike. Reporting now in Nature Medicine, a team led by Matthias Lichterfeld from the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston has discovered that a subgroup of memory T-cells, called T-memory stem cells, are the longest-lasting portion of the HIV reservoir. The vast majority of T-cells actually are short-lived and die fast. But there's a population of cells that is very long-lived and has what we call stem cell-like properties, so they persist forever and um, they can differentiate into more short-lived T-cell subsets, and at the same time they can repopulate their own pool size by what we call homeostatic proliferation. So they can renew themselves. So that's kind of the stem cell properties, but these aren't like embryonic stem cells or other kind of stem cells in the body, right? 
Yeah, that's a very important point that you're making. This is really a, a lymphocyte population. So it's a, a differentiated T-cell population, but at the same time, it imitates some of the properties that we typically identify in, in stem cells. And these were only discovered a few years ago. Yeah, it's actually a, a very recent discovery. It's about um, two to three years that these cells were detected, first in humans, also in mice, and also in non-human primates. So in a couple of different species, these cells have now been identified, and there's also specific markers to identify them phenotypically. And it's about 2% of all CD4 T cells in, in humans that, that have these specific stem cell-like properties. What made you think that the HIV virus might be hiding out in this population of T cells specifically? So first of all, we know that CD4 cells are really the target cells for HIV. But what's very important when we look at HIV-infected patients is that HIV is really able to persist in the human body for extremely long periods of time, for decades. So if people are started on treatment and they stay on treatment for 10, 15 years or so, Afterwards, HIV is still detectable, so it manages to, to stick around. So that made us think HIV must be finding a cell type that is very long-lasting and long-lived, and we felt this particular cell subset might be a good candidate. So it was the suspect, and you were the detective, and you went looking for it, and, and indeed the virus was there. Right. So we, we looked at these um, cells, first of all, in a, in a sort of tissue culture system, and we found um, sort of not necessarily um, expectedly that these cells are very um, susceptible to HIV. What about in patient samples, people who've been on antiretroviral therapy for years? Yeah, so that was the next step. We looked at, um, at patients who had been on treatment for a long time, and we find that the levels of HIV DNA that we can detect in this particular subset is actually higher than in any of the alternative CD4 cell, uh, cell subsets that we looked at. So that really does suggest that HIV can sort of selectively target this particular um, subset of CD4 cells and use it for promoting persistence long term. There's been a lot of research in recent years trying to find ways to lure HIV out of its hiding place. And now you're showing that it's a large part of its hiding place are these memory stem cell T cells. How does that knowledge help in, in the goal towards purging the HIV of that reservoir? Yeah, it's, that's a real challenge, and, and I don't have a definitive answer for this, but one attempt that many people make currently is to use drugs that can reactivate HIV, like induce active HIV gene expression in cells where HIV is sort of in a silent condition. And there's multiple drugs that can do this, which are now being tested in clinical studies. One group of drugs that's being evaluated is our um, histone deacetylase inhibitors. And um, what we are currently actually doing is we're testing to what extent this T-memory stem cell subset is susceptible to HDAC inhibitors. So we are looking at patients who are receiving these drugs and we're like figuring out what kind of changes these drugs induce in the different CD4 cell populations, including the T-memory stem cell population. And that's going to be sort of informative to know um, if, if those interventions might be effective. If these cells have stem cell-like properties, there's embryonic stem cells, there's also cancer stem yeah. cells, and we have drugs or people are trying to advance drugs that, that can selectively target those Rather than trying to lure HIV out of these cells, could we just try to ablate the cells by going after their, their stem cell nature? 
Yeah, that, that's exactly the, the idea that we have. So I, I like this idea of comparing these cells to cancer stem cells. Cancer stem cells are a population of cancer cells that are very sh long-lived and are typically not easily targetable by existing anti-cancer drugs. So there's a lot of um, investigation of um, drugs that could specifically target cancer stem cells, and we are considering that these drugs might also have efficacy against HIV-infected T-memory stem cells and could potentially be useful as an additive intervention to target the reservoir of cells that are persisting, that are HIV-infected and persist despite uh, treatment. Matthias Lichterfeld. We end this month now with the discovery of a new cellular pathway implicated in Gaucher disease. Gaucher disease is a lysosomal storage disorder in which fatty acids accumulate in certain organs. There are a number of enzyme replacement therapies available that can help with the most common form of Gaucher, but these therapies do nothing for people with neuropathic forms of the disease. Tony Futterman is a biochemist at the Weizmann Institute in Israel and the author of a new study in this month's Nature Medicine. Gaucher disease has more than one type of disease. So type 1 disease, which is the one for which there's enzyme available, is, is a systemic disease with no CNS, no central nervous system involvement. The disease which we started working on when we began this paper was type 2 and type 3 disease, whereby there is a CNS involvement and there is absolutely no therapy available on the market for any of these neurological forms of Gaucher disease. So with an eye to finding targets that might help treat the neurological symptoms, you turn to mouse models. Do we have mouse models of all three types that accurately recapitulate the various uh, human forms of the disease? So uh, if you'd have talked to me five years ago, the answer would have been no. But there were mouse models developed in about 2006 and 2007, uh, and some other ones that have come out later, that more or less recapitulate the human disease. You know, they're not bad. In the Gaucher world, we're ecstatic because at least we have something to work with, which we didn't have beforehand. With these mouse models then that have the neurological symptoms, how did you happen upon this particular pathway you've identified in the study, the RIPK3, Receptor Interacting Protein Kinase 3 pathway? We had shown in a paper published a year or two ago that levels of tumor necrosis factor, TNF, were elevated in the CNS and almost serendipitously, we kind of came across the lip kinase pathway. And, and you saw that it's upregulated in these mouse models of Gaucher? Yeah, that was our first observation. So we took the mouse models, and because we knew that TNF was elevated, we decided to look at levels of two, two components of the lip kinase pathway. Uh, we did that first of all by PCR to measure messenger RNA levels, and then we confirmed it by Western blotting. And that was exactly what got us into the whole pathway, because then we realized that maybe we had something that could explain either the cell death mechanism or the mechanism of inflammation in these mice. And then importantly, you saw actually when you depleted the RIP kinase, uh, the mice got better. So this is an amazing experiment. What we found in the knockout mice were that essentially, whereas the wild-time mice develop symptoms after we begin to inject them with CBE, which is a chemical inhibitor of the enzyme GBA, which is the enzyme affected in Gaucher disease, if we start to inject on day 8, by day 40, all of the mice are dead. If we take the knockout, the lip kinase knockout mice, 
we see that some of them live until 180 days. And for me, it's the most exciting experiment I think that I've ever done in my life. I've never seen an extension of lifespan this long. And I hope, I don't think I'm exaggerating. Wow, from 40 days to 180 days. And then also, beyond survival, there were benefits in things like motor control and things in the brain, right? So the first thing we looked at was a CNS. Uh, because that was what we were working on. And we, as you mentioned, saw motor coordination changes, some behavioral changes, less inflammation. And then we started to study the pathway of inflammation. And then we actually realized that we might have the involvement of this pathway, which might also be beneficial not only for the type 2-3 patients, i.e. those with uh, neurological phenotype, but also with the type 1, which is the most common form of the disease. So all the results in this paper are obviously very impressive, but they're achieved through experimental manipulation of the RIP kinase pathway, not through uh, a small molecule or some kind of drug, which is obviously what we want. And as you note at the end of your paper, that hasn't been documented before, an actual drug that, that shows benefit in a, in a mouse, let alone in a human. So how do we now translate these results and get this work closer to patients? We, since we started working on this pathway, which was a fairly short time ago, we've been amazed at the number of fields upon which this pathway impacts. As we mentioned in the paper, there's a number of other diseases in which this pathway is involved. And we understand that there are a number of companies that are looking to develop small molecule inhibitors of this pathway, and um, we're attempting to set up conversations with a number of these companies. Personally, I'm convinced that within some time, and I wouldn't like to commit what that time would be, there will be small molecule inhibitors available on this pathway. And I would love to think that some of these small molecule inhibitors would be suitable and provide an alternative therapy for all of the forms of Gaucher disease, and maybe even some additional lysosomal storage diseases in which this pathway may be involved. Tony Futterman. Well, that's it for this episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast, but there's plenty more to be found in the February issue of the journal, including the description of a new technique for mapping creatine in the heart, and a study showing how good cholesterol can turn bad. All that and more can be found on our website, nature.com slash naturemedicine. There you can also find out how to apply to become our new chief editor, or you can simply write a letter of appreciation for outgoing chief Juan Carlos Lopez. Drop us a line to wish JC well. The email address is medicine at us.nature.com. Until next time, I'm Ailey Dolgan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>